The executive yuan has announced sweeping tuition cuts for secondary and tertiary education. In a meeting on Thursday, it approved a yearly reduction of 35,000 NT for private university students. It also finalized a full tuition exemption for all high schools and vocational colleges, as well as increased subsidies and loan extensions for all disadvantaged students. The move was credited to Vice President Lai Qingde and his push to close the gap between public and private universities. But opposition parties sharply criticized the policy, accusing the cabinet of vote buying. Speaking at the Taiwan Future Conference, the DPP's presidential candidate Lai Qingde highlighted Taiwan's goal of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. He said he hoped to use an innovation-driven industrial model to help Taiwan's industries upgrade and undergo an economic transformation. The government anticipates investing 900 billion NT before 2030 and is calling on the private sector to join in. We hope to continue making strides toward this goal. I hope to establish a net zero technology innovation development platform to promote innovative net zero technology industries. Amid its ongoing push to reach net zero, the government has also approved a 35,000 NT tuition reduction for private university students, a proposal by Vice President Lai. It's also approved a full tuition waiver for high school students and students of vocational technical colleges. The main opposition party slammed the move, calling it a ploy to win votes in the 2024 election. I think that everyone is supportive of education, but the point is, you've been in power for the past eight years. Why did you delay the rollout of this policy until close to the election? That's what people are wondering. Is this a ploy to win votes, to win over young voters? I don't believe he has a deep understanding of this policy. The ratio of students studying in private universities is 66%. I believe that young people would be thrilled with this policy. The DPP stood firm in its defence. With the tuition cut policy, Lai is seen as making the first move to court the youth vote. After 63 years in service, the MIM-23K Hawk missile was officially decommissioned at a Tainan ceremony on Thursday. The Hawk was once critical to Taiwan's air defense, but due to age and maintenance issues, it's been phased out in recent years. As for what will replace it, let's hear from a de defense analyst. In the future, Taiwan's air defense network may consist of long-range Tiangong missiles, Patriot missiles, medium-range land-based Lujian-2 missiles, NASAMS missiles, as well as short-range Stinger missiles in the Avenger system. This multi-layered air defence network can effectively block the threat of PLA aircraft, cruise missiles and other air targets to ensure the security of key military infrastructure and the air defence of ground troops. The MIM-23K Hawk missile is a medium-range surface-to-air missile made by the U.S. defence company Raytheon. It's affected at an altitude of up to 20 kilometers and a range of about 40 kilometers. It was once the backbone of Taiwan's mid to low altitude air defense. With the Chinese threat growing, Taiwan is rushing to produce its own drones and other key weapons. 
The effort is powered by a team of private Taiwanese companies, including Geosat and Aerospace Industrial Development Corporation, or AIDC. At a forum on Thursday, the two contractors spoke about their latest projects and the future of the domestic defense sector. Let's hear from them. Which restaurant you go to eat in is your own business, but you can't close your own kitchen. Autonomy in national defence is fundamental. The food you cook yourself is clean and you won't be ripped off. Drawing on an analogy, the head of Aerospace Industrial Development Corporation highlights the importance of self-reliance in national defence. He also spoke on domestically producing aircraft. The significance of locally manufacturing jets lies in having rights to the system. If I have the rights, I can bring the entire jet supply chain to Taiwan. This serves two purposes. The first is revitalising our industries, and the second is to free us from control by foreign countries. As a key player in domestic jet production, the AIDC is behind the indigenous T-5 Brave Eagle advanced jet trainer. It's also making a push to produce high-end military aircraft. The company stressed that domestic production is about more than assembling components. Once we have the system rights, the first thing to do is to make the system components ourselves. For an aircraft, if you can make its casing, its frame, the overall design and the system's components, then what can't you do? This is the real way to domestically produce aircraft. Currently, 50% of the parts are made domestically, but in the future, I will make it 100%. This will bring supply chains back to Taiwan. To achieve self-reliance in national defence, the military and private companies are racing against time to build drones. Drones allow smaller countries to fight with bigger countries. Luo Zhenfeng, the CEO of Geosat, works in the development and production of UAV systems. He cites the Russo-Ukraine war as an example, stressing that drones are core weaponry used in asymmetrical warfare. Given that China's drone technology is maturing, Taiwan needs to speed up its own drone development, he said. In fact, 90% of the world's advanced chips are exported from Taiwan. So Taiwan has all the conditions to be a major UAV power. The question now is whether the government's policies can be implemented so that industries can be integrated and connect with the rest of the world to become an important part of the supply chain. Lula called on the government to continue promoting relevant policies from the domestic production of drones to jets. In this way, Taiwan can have its own defense supply chain and even expand into international markets. Schools out. Taiwan's universities and colleges are breaking up for the summer. And many young people are looking for casual work to earn money. A whopping 95% of college students plan to find a summer job this year, the highest proportion for 12 years. Why are students so keen to get down to work? One reason might be that the basic pay for hourly work has gone up. So even the simplest labor is valued more highly than ever before. And job market experts say that companies are in great need of labor right now. So job seekers might be luck. A thick cream is piped into the mold and topped with a tzuki paste. 
The two halves are pressed together to produce a piping hot Amagawa yaki. Ms. Lee helps produce the treats in this bakery and handles the cash register, among many other duties. She places the treats in individual bags, 250 a day on average, and lays them out carefully in the right categories. After she clocks off, it's on to a bar for her other job as a waitress. Ms. Lee works 11 hours and earns more than 2,000 NT a day. The work is hard, but she doesn't bemoan it. She's chosen to spend her summer this way to save up money. In the future, I want to go and study tattoo art. But being a tattooist's apprentice doesn't have a salary. Actually, in some places they charge you for it. So I thought I would first come here to do a casual job and save up some money to apply for apprenticeships. According to a job seeker's website, an overwhelming 95% of university students in Taiwan plan to seek casual work this summer. That's the highest rate in 12 years. Of those 95%, just over two-thirds will take on multiple jobs. And what are their dream jobs? The top five sought-after employers are Elite, McDonald's, Louisa Coffee, 7-Eleven and Starbucks. There's a labour shortage, after all, which means the chance that students will be able to find casual work this summer vacation promises to increase significantly compared to last year. This job market expert says work is more attractive this summer thanks to this year's rise in the legal basic pay for hourly work. It now stands at 176 NT per hour. Meanwhile, amid the post-COVID revival, about 40 percent of companies in Taiwan need casual workers this summer. That's back on par with pre-2020 levels. In other words, students are facing a welcoming job market. A new art landmark has opened in New Taipei's Bali district. Taiwan's first luxury marble museum spans a total of 500 square meters. FTV reporter Stephanie Yang takes us in for a look. This museum, which is located in a warehouse, displays hundreds of large luxury marble stones on its walls. Our material is basically from all over the world. The quarry basically is from Brazil and Italy. So all the special, like, uh, they have a semi-diamond, uh, semi-crystal uh, semi in it, and also the crystal in this. We try to, try to display the, the marble, the stone, in a very unique way. So make like a, make like a gallery and like an art piece. So we try to appreciate the nature, what, what, what the nature gives us. One highlight is Soda Light also known as Princess Blue, a world-renowned and rare luxury stone. Sodalite is a gorgeous blue gemstone with white veins. The stone was shipped all the way from Italy to Taiwan, setting a record for the highest price of stone imported to Taiwan. Uh, this is Sodalite, so basically it's a uh, blue diamond. So uh, originally, the Brazilian people use it for the like use it for the rings, or all the accessory that they use. Aside from marble, the museum also holds exhibitions displaying artwork by local and international artists. There are like a, a very high floor and a very wide space, and with the uh, with artists Sherry Zay, Emily Wang, and Peng Yuci, and Sun Wong Jun. Founders of the museum hope that more people can pay a visit to learn about and admire the beauty of marble stones. FTV reporter Stephanie Yang and Song Hongling in New Taipei City. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. wants peaceful coexistence with China, but not at the expense of Taiwan. 
Speaking at a think tank event in New York, Blinken said that the U.S. was not seeking to contain Beijing and was keen to re-establish long-term communication channels. But he also said that Washington's bottom line was maintaining the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. In early June, China joined forces with Russia to send fighter jets to patrol the Asia-Pacific region. The move intensified an already fraught situation and reflected the intensity of US-China rivalry. On June 28, US Secretary of State Antony Blinken reiterated that Washington and Beijing needed to find a way to peacefully coexist. And it starts with some basics. It starts with actually building back sustained lines of communication. That was the, you're going to start to, to see uh, more engagement in both directions with uh, senior Chinese officials coming here, senior Americans going there. Blinken pointed out that the US was not seeking to contain China because this did not suit US interests. Last year, bilateral trade between the US and China reached an all-time high as American trade sanctions had been finally calibrated, with only 0.0001% of Chinese companies facing trade restrictions. However, the US seeking peaceful coexistence with China does not mean Washington has no bottom line. We continue to be guided by the One China policy based on <laughs> the three communiques, the Taiwan Relations Act and the six assurances. That hasn't changed and that won't change. We are there for Taiwan. Uh, under the Taiwan Relations Act, we've had a long-standing policy of making sure that uh, we could uh, do what's necessary to help Taiwan defend itself. That policy and the, um, the sort of rheostat on it also uh, depends a lot on what, what Beijing is doing or not doing. Blinken said the US supports the status quo in the Taiwan Strait and hopes that Taiwan and China can resolve their differences peacefully. It opposes any side unilaterally destroying the status quo, as this could spark a global economic crisis. But since 2016, China has made continuous moves against the status quo, whether it's through missile tests, military deployments, drills or economic coercion and suppression of Taiwan's international space. In a recent CNN interview, French President Emmanuel Macron expressed a position similar to Washington's. Look, I was very clear and I want to be clear. First, on Taiwan, we are in favour of the status quo which means we are dead against any aggression. As Blinken noted, Taiwan plays an important global role. 70% of semiconductors are manufactured in Taiwan, and half the world's container ships transit the Taiwan Strait. Maintaining stability in the Strait has become a matter of global interest. Even as the US eases its fraught relations with China, it still set the proverbial line in the sand when it comes to disrupting the cross-strait status quo. We turn now to Taidong, where a celebrated doctor has opened a clinic for underserviced communities. The Southlink Medical Foundation Clinic opened Wednesday with the goal of providing quality home-based care in rural villages. It's the brainchild of physician Xu Chaobing, a longtime advocate for medical rights in Taidong. The clinic will initially focus on house calls, but will expand as it brings more staff and resources on board. With the cutting of a ribbon, the Southlink Medical Foundation Clinic is launched in Dawu Township, Taidong. The clinic aims to serve patients wherever they are, 
making house calls in the mountains if need be. For more than a decade, physician Xu Chaobing has fought for the medical rights of East Coast residents. Three years ago, he was diagnosed with nasopharyngeal cancer, but his commitment to Taitung's people never wavered. In opening the Southlink Medical Foundation Clinic, he wants to provide quality home-based care. Our primary mission is to provide initial patient care as a general family practice. We will provide initial care. For emergency and severe cases, we'll complete the preliminary care before transferring them out. In addition to the regular doctor's consults, on Wednesday afternoons and Fridays, we will go to Indigenous villages and serve people in their homes. The clinic aims to serve four townships, Taimali, Dawu, Jingfeng and Daren. The four are sparsely populated and shaped by narrow topography, making it hard to centralize medical resources. Locals who need treatment must spend at least one hour traveling by car. The Southlink Medical Foundation Clinic will provide basic medical services and expand gradually as it acquires more equipment and personnel. Initially, Eda Hospital will provide support. In the future, we may bring on doctors from other medical institutions to provide support. Our greatest hope is for other people to join us in providing medical care to rural communities. What the clinic offers isn't just medical services. It's really not easy to provide this kind of personal care and attention. Xu spares no effort to provide medical care to the community. He plans to eventually expand the clinic services to benefit more people in need. Travel planning is a booming industry. Amid the resurgence of tourism post-COVID and a growing trend for tourists to travel solo, there's high demand for expert planning support. Traditionally, Taiwanese travelers favored tour groups which offered a pre-planned one-size-fits-all package with no room for individual itineraries. But that's unsatisfying for more and more travelers who want a personalized schedule. The tricky part is arranging all the details of a complex, one-of-a-kind trip. That's where the travel planner comes in. In the last few years, travel planner Liu Xuguan has noted a rising trend for clients wanting to go on self-directed tours. But if they arrange everything for themselves, they will often miss some details. That's why they turn to him. They specify their destinations and he designs a custom itinerary. It's generally clients who have already experienced a certain level of travel. They have a basic amount of travel experience, so they don't want to do the stereotypical rush around the big tourist sites in a group anymore. For me, getting a travel planner to design the itinerary saves time and hassle. When I come home after work, I just want to relax. When you go traveling, you really want to plan some things to do, but I wouldn't know where to begin. But arranging a schedule isn't the half of it. Travel planners need to consider the client's age, budget, preferences, lifestyle and more to hit the mark. Courses in tourism and leisure studies at Taiwanese universities now offer students training in how to map out a travel strategy and market it to a client. I'm someone who likes to have an itinerary, so I always make a plan before I go traveling. It means I have more of a good time. Getting professional certification as a travel planner entails a written exam as well as a technical test. 
drawing up an itinerary for a client on the spot. The hard part is not arranging the schedule. It's understanding what the client is thinking and how to satisfy their requirements with the itinerary. Travel planning might sound like a simple job on the surface, but in fact, it takes a lot of attention to detail. As tourism recovers from the shocks of COVID-19, travel planning is an increasingly sought-after career. Mark your calendars for a special event at New Taipei's Yeliu Geo Park. Over the next two weeks, the park will host themed activities and light shows at night. The park's most famous attraction, the Queen's Head, will be aglow with colorful illuminations that give a fresh look to the iconic formation. We'll offer interactive activities in the playful princess area. Over there at the wall, the rock wall there will be a social media check-in experience. Your photo and your message will be projected onto the wall. The park will feature eight illumination zones and four themed light shows. Visitors can enter each day from 6.30 to 10 p.m. from Friday till July 16th. On June 26, 2023, at 8.30 p.m. Taiwan time, the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation, IFRS Foundation, and the International Sustainability Standards Board, ISSB, announced the official versions of the International Sustainability Standards, IFRSS1 and IFRSS2, marking the beginning of a new era for global capital markets and sustainable disclosure. These sustainability standards will enhance stakeholders' trust and confidence in companies' sustainable disclosures and provide the necessary information for investors to make informed decisions. So, there is no doubt why, over the last several years now, IOSCO, the Financial Stability Board, the G20, the G7, business leaders have gradually more and more looked at the IFRS Foundation and urged the IFRS Foundation to work because this is the only organization that has the IASB, that indeed has an accounting system that is based on a robust, super robust due process, market-informed, answering to the market needs for the public goods of capital markets globally, that for two decades and something, are now in place, as Andreas said earlier, in 140-plus jurisdictions. So who else could have been better placed to do that? And this is what we were tasked doing, uh, building on the shoulders of many, many people, uh, organizations that were before us, the TCFD, the SASB, the Integrated Reporting uh, Council, um, the CDSB, uh, to bring forward a language a language, an accounting-based language, not a discrete suite of ESG metrics and disclosures, which could be inconsistent, which can be competitive against each other, redundant, overlapping with gaps, a consistent, comprehensive language. We are standing, we were standing till this morning on one side of that frontier, and we crossed it. We crossed it this morning with the launch of S1 and S2, our general requirement and our first climate standards. And I'm super happy to share that with you all here, the IFRS Foundation's uh, global community, because you are at the very forefront uh, of the stakeholders that have 
urged us to work on this, that has supported us in doing that, and that hopefully will benefit from the use of this language. I'd like a round of applause for all of you for your support in this journey. In the afternoon of the 27th, ARDF, in collaboration with the U-Town Management Committee at Shiji Science Park Headquarter, organized the Carbon Reduction New Economy Seminar, chaired by ARDF Chairman Yi Xin Wang. The seminar featured keynote speeches from Ding Wang Zheng, the chairman of the ARDF Sustainability Standards Committee, and Qin Ho Cheng, the president of Shi Xin University, as well as presentations by several experts. In response to the global release of Sustainability Standards S1 and S2, Yuan Pin Tsai, Deputy Director of the Securities and Futures Bureau of the Financial Supervisory Commission, FSC, stated that the FSC will formulate relevant policy directions and blueprints next week to provide guidance for domestic companies to comply with the standards. During her keynote speech on Net Zero Transformation and Introduction of the Climate Change Response Act, Lin Yi Tsai, Director of the Climate Change Office at the Environmental Protection Administration, mentioned the carbon tax in Taiwan. She emphasized that the tax is for general revenue and the fee is for specific purposes, with the key focus being on how much carbon emissions businesses can reduce through the use of new technologies. Green finance is seen as an important means to prompt businesses to engage in carbon disclosure and reduction initiatives. The seminar also included practical insights on carbon reduction, such as a sharing of energy-saving experiences by Wen Yin Lu, Director of International Affairs at Sisin University, a presentation on intelligent energy-saving strategies by Yi DeFei, Executive Director of the Trend Foundation, and a discussion on green building and health building certification by Mon Sin Wang, Manager at SGS Taiwan Inspection Technology, as well as a session on the application of carbon-neutral information technology strategies by Sin Yi Cheng, Executive Vice President of M-Power Information. The presentations were highly informative, and lively exchanges of ideas took place during the event.